All right, brothers and sisters, it is time to take out our Bibles together. So will you take it out with me? If you don't have one, I'd encourage you to look at the Bible on the pew in front of you. And once again, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Lord willing, we finish out the chapter today, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50. Verse 50. <clears throat> to the end of the chapter, verse 58. <clears throat> now, if you pay attention to the stories of literature and film all through the years, you come to realize that the ones that really resonate with us are those that are a variation on the story of Jesus Christ, in one way or another. The stories that really resonate with people, even when the storyteller did not intend for that to be the case, the ones that really resonate with us have all of these aspects of the story of Jesus within that story. Specifically, we're going to focus in on one aspect of Jesus' story today. How many stories out there are there of a throne that has been abandoned by the true and rightful and good king, and in his absence, an evil rule steps in and creates misery for the people. And the only solution is for the king to return and take his rightful place as ruler of the people. Think about Robin Hood and the absence of King Richard and all of the chaos that ensues. Think about the Lion King with the death of Mufasa and his brother Scar and Simba. Think about the Chronicles of Narnia, especially the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Aslan and the, the White Witch. And then my favorite of them all, of course, the Lord of the Rings. I'm not going to lie, I was just looking for an excuse to use the title for my sermon today. But we're, we're focusing on the second coming the second coming of Jesus today. And I want you to see this in our text. Paul talks about it in regards to the resurrection of all of us that we've been focusing on for the last couple weeks. The second coming of Jesus, starting in verse 50. Let's read our text. This is God's word through the Apostle Paul to us. He writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I want to focus today on the second coming of Jesus. Specifically, let's ask this question, what will it be like? What should we expect when Jesus comes again? Now, you might very well not live to see that day. There are many, thousands, millions, probably billions who have not lived to see the day of Jesus' return. But you might. Jesus might come back 
in our lifetimes? What would we expect to see if Jesus came back during our lifetimes? Specifically, we, Paul speaks of this in verses 51 and 52. Now, the best church sign I have ever seen was actually on the wall of a church nursery baby room. You know the baby room in churches where the babies can be put down and take a nap and you can rock them and usually it's only women that can go in there. Well, I saw a sign on a church baby room one time that was just verse 51, and it was brilliant. I mean, completely out of context, but listen to verse 51. In a church baby room, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, right? (laughs) I mean, ladies, if any of y'all want to, like, cross-stitch that and frame it up and put it in our, our nursery on the wall, you have my permission. You can do it, right? It's brilliant. Best church sign I've ever seen. But... You know, taking verses out of context aside, it means we will not all die. Not all of us will die before Jesus comes. Now, there is a sense, we've, we've talked about this in weeks past, death comes to us all, right? All of us are going to expect death. But if you live up to the point where Jesus returns, then you won't experience death. But we will all, all of us, be changed. Our bodies transformed. The imperishable, the, the perishable, rather, will put on the imperishable. Our bodies will be transformed to be like Jesus's glorious body. But in verse 52, it says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible's where we get that phrase, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. This reminds us a lot of 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me read to you 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, where Paul, this same author, writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so we will always be with the Lord. The second coming, what can you expect? Well, you can expect this. It will be announced in majestic fashion when it happens. If you are alive until the second coming of Jesus, know that it will be announced in majestic fashion when it happens. One time I was at work in Lexington. I was sitting there working in my office and I heard the sound of a horn like nothing I had ever heard before. To this day, I don't really know what it was. I think it was some kind of emergency siren thing, but it was unlike any I had ever heard before. And I legitimately thought for about five seconds, this is it. Like, we're, I, I, let's go outside. Let's everybody go outside. Let's see it. This is it. Jesus is coming back, right? Because the trumpet will sound, it says. First Thessalonians says there will be a cry of command from an archangel and the trumpet of God will sound. It will be announced in majestic fashion for all to hear. You can expect that at the return of Jesus. Listen to Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 where it says of Jesus' second coming, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now that verse right there tells us a couple things. Number one, he will come from the sky. Remember Acts chapter 1, the ascension of Jesus? Jesus is with his disciples. He ascends up into heaven. Then all of a sudden, right next to the apostles are two men in white, dazzling clothes, apparently angels, saying, why do you marvel at this? Jesus is going to come back in the same way 
that he left, right? He's going to come back in the same way that he left. He'll be coming from the sky, coming on the clouds, Revelation says. And it says, every eye will see him. When Jesus comes, every eye will see him. Now, how does that work with an earth that is round? I have no idea. I really don't know. But Jesus' second coming is going to be full of miracles that none of you can explain fully. All right? The resurrection of the dead, there's all kinds of stuff going on there that none of us can really explain. But it says every eye will see him. Everyone at the same time will see Jesus as he returns. And then Revelation 1, 7 there says, And all the tribes of the earth will wail on his account. There will be two groups of people at the return of Jesus. One group will rejoice to see him. One group will be the happiest they have ever been, seeing Christ coming on the clouds. For the other group, they will wail. Because immediately they realize there's no more chances. This is it. Which group will you be in? If Jesus were to come back this afternoon, which group would you be in? You see, he will not come as he did the first time. Jesus' first coming was in secret, right? He was born to a lowly family. He was born in a barn, essentially, right? You ever say that to your kids? Were you born in a barn? Jesus was. He was born in a barn, right? The only people there to see it were his family, and then the only other witnesses were the animals. And then pretty soon, just a few shepherds, lowly shepherds who were nearby came, but that's it. He came in secret the first time, the second coming will be the exact opposite, announced to all, and all will see. If ever there is someone on earth gaining a following and lots of attention by claiming to be Christ come again, don't you believe it for a second? We know better. When Jesus comes, we will all see him. When Jesus comes, everyone will know beyond a shadow of a doubt what is going on. Jesus even says in Matthew 24, you should expect false Christs to come. You should expect that. He even says that false Christs will perform signs and wonders to deceive people. Jesus says that. Don't be surprised. But don't you believe it for a second. When Jesus returns, everyone will know beyond a shadow of a doubt. We always have this question in our minds. Would I have known it was Jesus when when he was here? What if I lived in the time of Jesus' first coming? Would I have been those that believed in him Or would I have been one of the ones that that persecuted him and that ridiculed him, right? We always have that question about Jesus' first coming. Jesus' second coming, that question doesn't apply. Everyone will know immediately, beyond the shadow of a doubt, what is happening. His first coming was humble and meek. His second coming will be the exact opposite. Victorious. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, a couple weeks ago, we saw he will destroy his enemies. He will destroy all of his enemies. He will put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed will be death. Revelation 19 says, poetically, this is poetic, symbolic language, but it's interesting to get the feel for Revelation 19. On Jesus' second coming, it says he will be riding a war horse, wearing a robe dipped in blood with a sword coming out of his mouth and a rod of iron to rule his enemies. And it says he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. It could not be any different than his first coming. 
radically different in victory over his enemies. And so Jesus' second coming, we can expect all of this. But again, I ask you, what, what group will you be in? The one that rejoices to see him or the one that wails on account of the sight? Now, our text also talks about death and sin and the law. Look back at verse 54 with me, and I'm going to read through verse 56 again. I especially want you to focus in on verse 56. It says, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And then verse 56 here, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I think we can all understand the first phrase, the sting of death is sin. It's easy enough. The the reason death comes to us all is because of sin. The reason death is in the world is because of sin. Think back to Adam and Eve. In the garden, God tells Adam, the first man, here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You may not eat of it. And in the day that you eat of it, you will surely what? You will surely die, right? Death enters the world. Human beings become mortal because of that sin. And every human being since has died. Every human being since has been mortal. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. And so the, the sting of death is sin. Death is in the world because of sin. We get that. We understand that. But the next phrase is a little bit more tricky. The power of sin is the law. Now, what does that mean? Because you might be reading that, and I I wouldn't blame you, reading that and thinking, John, I thought God's law was a good thing. I thought it was the way to holiness. How could the law of God be a power for sin that leads to death? Now, one of the things that really helps us here in this verse, verse 56, and especially the second phrase, is that Paul, the same author, in the book of Romans teaches on this extensively. In fact, I'm going to read to you Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7, and it helps explain what he's saying here. Romans 7, starting in verse 7, these will be up on the screens behind me. It says, what shall we say, uh, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. So Paul starts off right away and he says, don't get it wrong. The law is not sin. The law is not bad. The law is not evil. But he goes on, yet if it had not been for the law... I would have not known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now let me explain that one real quick. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. I believe this is in reference to what we often call the age of accountability in young people. Young people come to an age where all of a sudden sin becomes real to them in their hearts. The guilt that they have before God becomes real to them. All of a sudden sin is not just, oh, I I disobeyed my parents. I broke my parents' rules. No, sin before the Lord becomes real to them, and they start sensing a need to be made right with God. I think this is what Paul's referring to right here in verse 9. He says, I was alive once apart from the law, but then the commandment came, and sin came alive, and I died. So Paul's saying at that point, I became accountable to the Lord for my sin. I died spiritually. All of a sudden, he needs to be saved. And then he goes on, 
The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. You see, the the commandments came and an opportunity for sin was born. That's what Paul's talking about. The commandments came, the good commandments of God come, and now an opportunity for sin is born. Think of the Ten Commandments alone. The Ten Commandments alone. Paul said in that passage that the commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Well, think of the Ten Commandments. You shall not lie. Well, if you don't ever lie, you will have life. If you don't ever lie, you will have life. How's that going for you? You shall not covet. If you, you, if you do not ever covet, you will have life. How's that going? You shall not dishonor your father and mother. And if you never dishonor them, if you always honor them as you should, you will have life. Or think about this one. If you don't ever love anything more than God, you will have life. How's that going for us? You see, instead what happened was that God says, do not lie, and then Satan starts tempting us to lie in every way. And even if our spirit is willing, our flesh is weak. None of us are innocent. And so the power of sin is the law. The law is not bad in and of itself. The law is gloriously good. It's just that sin seized an opportunity through the law. That's what Paul means. Now, don't misunderstand this here. When God gave the law, it was not as if he made a mistake. It was not as if he didn't see that one coming. Oh, sin's going to take an opportunity through these commandments and deceive people and bring death to them. It is not as though God did not see that coming, that he made a mistake. It did not catch him off guard. This was his plan from the very beginning. See, Satan thinks he is so smart, but he is constantly playing right into the hands of God. Satan says, oh, there's a commandment. I'm going to do everything I can to get those people to break it. And what Satan didn't know was that God didn't give us the law so we could be saved by it. God did not give us the law so that we could be saved by it. The law exists to show us two primary things. The law of God, the commandments of God, exists to show us two things primarily. The holiness of God and our sinfulness. The law exists to show us the holiness of God and our sinfulness. In other words, the law shows us our need for a Savior. The law shows us our need for a Savior. It's like a mirror that finally allows us to see ourselves accurately and honestly. And so the question to all of us this morning is, when we read God's law, when we read God's commands, how do we respond in our hearts? Do we respond like the prideful Pharisee in Jesus' story? Praying in the temple, saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Is that how we respond in our hearts when we read God's law? God, I thank you that I don't do that. I thank you that that's not me that has a problem with that. I thank you that I'm not like this person that just popped into my mind that really needs to read that verse. Do we respond like the prideful Pharisee, or do we respond like the humiliated tax collector who stood at a distance, could not even look up into heaven, beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
When you read God's commands, what do you think? Do you think, thank God I'm not like that? Or do you think, God, have mercy on me? Have mercy on me. This past week, we studied the parable of the Good Samaritan on Wednesday night. The Good Samaritan begins with a lawyer coming to Jesus trying to trap him. And the lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, how do you read the, how do you read the law? What, what's the law of God say? And he says, smartly, intelligently, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The, the, the lawyer says this. Love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he asks a follow-up question. And his follow-up question is, and just who is my neighbor? What he should have done is say, I need mercy. I see the law of God and I am exposed by it. I'm exposed by the law of God, the sinfulness, the darkness of my heart, the way that I have failed to live up to God's standard for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I've fallen short. Is there any way for a person like me to be saved? That's our response to reading God's word. And yet there are, there are so many who respond. And there are even times where I respond like this, where we read God's word and we think, God, thank God, thank, thank you, I'm not like other people. We come to God's law and it's a mirror that finally allows us to see ourselves accurately and honestly. And so with all of this in our text, all of this that we've just talked about, the question then is, how should we live? How should we then live based on what we just read? Look at verses 57 and 58. 57 says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, in the end, we talked about Jesus will defeat all of God's enemies. He will have victory over every enemy, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death itself, it says in verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. And so Paul goes on in verse 55, verse 55 is a taunt at death, right? A taunt of death. Paul is taunting death, so to speak. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Because Jesus' victory becomes our victory. Jesus' victory becomes our victory. It says God gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And so since Christ defeated death, we're not afraid of death anymore. His victory becomes our victory, right? And so we can taunt death. We can look death right in the face and say, bring it on, right? As one pastor wrote on Twitter this past week, I hate you, death. Yes, you will take me out someday, but I don't even care. Thanks to the risen Jesus, I will dance on your grave forever, you pathetic loser. Now, that's, that's a sense of pride that we don't want to have when we're talking to other people. When it comes to death, right? Paul says it's okay to taunt death. It's okay to look death in the face and say, I'm not afraid. Bring it on. And so he says, therefore, in 58, look at verse 58, therefore, anytime you see the word therefore in the New Testament, perk up and ask yourself, how does what's following relate to what just came, to what I just read, right? Because therefore means in light of everything that we've just read, in light of everything that we've just talked about, in light of what I know because of what Paul just told me, therefore, how should we live? And what does he say? Be steadfast and immovable. 
Be steadfast and immovable. And you can do that because you know death is swallowed up in victory. You know Jesus' victory that will come. You can be steadfast and immovable because his victory becomes your victory. In other words, don't let anything in this world move you away from Christ. Don't let anything or anyone in this world move you away from Christ. Be steadfast, immovable. Plant your feet in cement. I'm not going anywhere for anything. I'm in Christ till the day I die. No turning back, no turning aside. Be steadfast and immovable. Because think about it. The worst they can do is kill us. The worst they can do is kill us. That's that's the, the biggest weapon the world has. And death is not even something that is is something that, that makes us afraid anymore. Death is just a path, right? Death is a path to greater joy. Death is a path to being free from this mortal body and all of its weaknesses and this world and all of its temptations. We're not afraid of death. Knowing what's going to happen at Jesus' second coming frees us to live for Christ with a courage the world knows nothing about. It frees us to have courage in the face of the worst threats that the world knows nothing about. In the 4th century, the empress Eudoxia felt threatened by the bold preaching of a man by the name of John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople. Interestingly enough, his last name, Chrysostom, means golden mouth, appropriately. And his preaching of Christ threatened this empress and her power, apparently. And the empress threatened him with banishment, if he didn't shut his mouth. And he said, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. And she said, but I will kill you. And he said, no, you cannot, for my life is hidden with Christ in God. And she said, then I will take away your treasures. He said, no, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven. And my heart is there. And then she said, but I will drive you away from all your friends. You will have no one left. And he said, no, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven whom you cannot separate me from. And then he said, I defy you. For there is nothing you can do to harm me. Knowing what's going to happen in the end frees us to have a courage that the world knows nothing about. Think about this. If God were to come to you today in some supernatural way and say, I'm drafting you into my army. We've got a battle we're going to fight against the forces of evil. You're going to fight and some of you are going to die. But we're going to win in the end and I'm going to take care of you for all eternity. What would we do? We'd say, sign me up. I'm ready to go and I will risk it all. I don't even care. Right? I'm going to fight with fury. I'm going to fight with risk. I'm going to fight with courage because I know even if I die, we win and I'll be fine, right? God's going to take care of me. We know what's going to happen in the end. We know because Scripture has told us, and this, the words in this book are more real than the pew you're sitting on. It's more sure than anything we have in this whole world because it's the words of God and God always keeps His promises. He's never not kept a promise. And so it says, be steadfast and immovable. And then finally, Paul says, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
And so, brothers and sisters, let's serve and give and teach and speak for Jesus because we know how this ends. And we know that spiritual work done for the Lord in this life has an eternal reward in heaven. God calls us to sow and plant seeds, the harvest of which we may never see, but that's fine because our reward is in heaven. God calls us to speak the gospel and proclaim good news to a world that will often reject it, but that's fine because even though most will reject it, some will hear and believe. And we're not working for popularity. We're working for an eternal reward. We're working to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus has already secured the victory for you. It's already secured. And so we are free to spend it all and risk it all for His glory. And to bring more people into His glory. If we lose everything, He's going to take care of us for all eternity. It's the ultimate insurance policy. We're the ultimate trust fund babies, right? In college, we used to get so annoyed at all these people who just had so much money from their parents. It didn't matter what they did. It just didn't matter. They could risk everything. They could blow all their money on anything. They'd just get more from their mommy and daddy, right? We used to get so mad at that. We are the ultimate trust fund babies. We can risk it all. We can lose it all. He's going to take care of us for all eternity. But you can only access this trust fund by giving away your life to Jesus. You've got to give away your life to Jesus. It's the only way to get it. It's the only way to know you've got it taken care of for all eternity. It's the only way to know if I lose it all, it's fine. The only way that's fine is if your eternity is secure in Christ. It's the only way. And so, once again, I ask you, which group are you going to be in when Jesus returns? When the trumpet sounds, is that a sound of victory and rejoicing? Or is that a sound of terror? Because there's no more chances. It's over. For all eternity, it's over. Don't be in that second group. Don't wait another day. I'm here to tell you Jesus could come back this afternoon. Wouldn't that be wonderful if Jesus came back this afternoon? Or would it be? Would it be wonderful? It could happen. He will come like a thief in the night. He will come when we least expect Him. Are you ready? You know what to expect, but are you ready? Each week here at Columbia Christian after the sermon, we take some time to reflect and to speak to God, each one of us. We're going to take some time for silent prayer. This time is for you to speak to God. God just spoke to you, so you speak to Him. You you respond to God in whatever way He's laid this on your heart, in whatever way you need to. This is a time of response for all of us, not just for those who need to respond publicly. We all need to respond to God's Word, and it's going to look different for every one of us. We're going to give a few minutes of silent prayer so that we can all speak to God and reckon with what God has just put in front of us. Then after we have a time of private reflection and prayer, we're going to have a time of public response for anyone who needs to respond to the Word publicly. We'll do that after we pray. So let's pray for a few moments now.